Pastor Mike sends his regards, and he'll be with us next week. Hopefully he's enjoying a time of rest and refreshment. This morning we're going to be considering the parable of the unforgiving servant from Matthew chapter 18. It's a message for disciples. Now, some here this morning, by way of introduction, some here this morning may not be familiar with the name Paul Harvey. I can see a a bunch over here looking at me like, who? Well, you might recognize his voice from a Super Bowl commercial last year in that famous God Made a Farmer ad. Do you remember that? That was his voice. He was born before the first commercial radio stations went on the air, and he had a broadcast career that spanned more than 75 years. The rest of the story was a daily radio program that began during the Second World War. And these stories consisted of little-known or forgotten facts about famous people or events with some key element finally revealed at the end that put the entire story or the famous person into its proper historical context and brought meaning to the story. For example like the story of John Pemberton, a 19th century corner druggist who set out to develop a headache cure. He sold a jug of syrupy medicine to a local Atlanta pharmacy, and when a new employee incorrectly added carbonated water instead of plain water, the result was an instant success. And this mistake in mixing Pemberton's headache cure led to the product we now know as Coca-Cola. And now you know the rest of the story. So we find ourselves in a similar situation this morning. Just as we depended on Paul Harvey as our narrator to tell us the rest of the story, we find ourselves depending on Matthew as our narrator to tell us the rest of the story in order that we may understand the parable of the unforgiving servant. And I begin by praying for the message. Please join me. Lord, we're gathered before you. Your people are gathered here before you this morning. And they want to hear a word. They want to hear your word, faithfully preached, given out to them, that it would renew us and refresh us. Lord, this morning I ask that you would put aside any distractions that may be in our minds and hearts. It's a very challenging message, and you have challenged me more with this than any of the previous messages and teachings that I've had the privilege of standing before you to give. I also understand it's going to be a tremendous challenge for those here today. But I believe that there's blessing in your word, and it won't return to you void. So this morning, Lord, I ask for your power and presence to be with us, to calm our hearts and minds, that we may understand what you have for us this morning. In Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. Well, to get into a little bit of background before we dive into the parable. 
I'd like to speak briefly about Gospels, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, as a literary genre. Now, some scholars may disagree that they actually constitute their own particular biblical genre. And that, that's irrelevant. There's some that think that it, that it isn't, and it is. But the idea this morning is to look at, they do contain elements of other genres. There's some wisdom literature, there's a bit of poetry, there's prophetic literature contained within them. But the one thing that, they, that really stands out in these Gospels is that they're written in a style very similar to Old Testament Hebrew narratives. In other words, they're historical writing in story form. The narratives use elements like setting, plot, dialogue, conflict, resolution, the presence of a narrator to tell this historical story to us. And that's why this is so much in common with the Old Testament. It's told in the form of a story. The Gospels also, also contain parables, and we've taught on this before as today. It's a figurative speech involving comparison, a type of figurative speech involving comparison. And frequently there's secondary levels of meaning that go along with them. Now, the parable of the unforgiving servant is a story within a story. It's a parable within the framework of Matthew's larger narrative. And when I say narrative, I mean story, okay? It's a, it's a story within a story. Now, as we move closer to our parable, we want to talk a little bit about immediate context, that the parable's location in Matthew's narrative. Jesus' ministry was well underway. It was advancing. The Sermon on the Mount has already been preached. His ministry has been marked by miracles. The religious opposition of the day was intensifying, and the transfiguration has already taken place. For those of you that are not familiar with that, it's Jesus took three of his disciples up on the Mount of Transfiguration, where he was changed before them, where they got a glimpse of the glory of Christ in the presence of Moses and Elijah on this Mount. And at this point in the narrative, Jesus has repeatedly told his disciples about his impending betrayal, death, suffering, and resurrection. It gets us to chapter 18. Chapter 18 begins with a question. The disciples ask him, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And what follows is a series of teachings by Jesus answering that question in its various aspects. Uninterrupted series until we come to verse 21 the narrative flow the pace is changed by our narrator when peter asks jesus a question and jesus response in verse 22 serve as they serve as the introduction to our parable this morning so if you haven't already turned there please turn to matthew 18 21 through 35 Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Some of your translations say seventy times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, 
His master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So this fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. That's quite an exclamation point at the end of that parable. This is now no soft teaching by Jesus to his disciples. There's an edge to it. And what I want us to look at as we consider this a little more closely is that there are similarities. Both servants owe debt to another. And both servants humble themselves is what it means when they fell down before their creditors, I guess, and pleaded for the opportunity to pay the debt. But it's in the contrast of the parable where the thrust of meaning starts to come to the surface. For example, the amount of debt owed. The first servant owed the king 10,000 talents. Now, that's scholars tell us it's equivalent to about 200,000 years of wages. And the fellow servant, contrast that with the fellow servant who owed the first servant 100 denarii, which is equivalent to 100 days wages. So the first major contrast is the servant owed the king 200,000 years worth of service and wages, while the one servant owed this first servant 100 days worth of wages. The second contrast that comes up is in the character. Contrast the kindness of the king with the harshness of the servant. The mercy of the king with the lack of mercy of the servant. The compassion of the king contrasted with the lack of compassion of the servant. The justice of the king compared with the injustice displayed and contrasted with the servant's injustice and how he treated his fellow servant. And finally, the righteousness of the king contrasted with the wickedness of the servant. He's even called wicked, you wicked servant, in the parable. The third contrast is in attitude. The king had pity on this servant, yet the servant seized his fellow servant and began to choke him. So I think here we see the forgiveness of God and the forgiveness of man dramatically depicted. The climax comes at the end when we find the forgiveness in the kingdom of heaven is revealed. One, it's rooted in mercy. 
something that we need to pay attention to is the king was well within his rights in the story to, to lay claim to the servant, his wife, his children, and all that he had because of the enormous debt. Now, that wouldn't have paid the debt, but the king had a right to that. Yet he released him and forgave him his debt. It's also a judgment grounded in justice. Now, what do we mean by that? In verses 33 and 34. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? There's the justice. And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers or torturers in some translations until he should pay all his debt. There's the judgment. A harsh warning is issued in verse 35. That's the pattern you see in Matthew 18 with kingdom principle and harsh warning throughout. It doesn't diminish the gravity of the warning. I'm just telling you it's a pattern that you'll see in chapter 18. And in this harsh warning, Jesus provides the representations or the second levels of meaning for the parable. Notice he says in verse 35, So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So here we see the representations provided by the text, which is a really important principle when you're trying to understand parables. The biblical text will provide the representations that keeps us from imparting meaning onto that text that doesn't belong there. So what do we learn about this verse 35 and how it sheds light on these representations? Well, in this parable, the king is God. Jesus makes that clear, doesn't he? My heavenly father. The servants are the disciples. You can see that clearly too. And he says, so he'll do to each one of you. And the debt is sin. Sin is often spoken of as debt. But in this case, it's about forgiveness of sin. Remember the question that started the whole thing off with Peter asking Jesus, how often should I forgive my brother when he sins against me? So it's about forgiveness of sin. So we see those representations in there as far as us interpreting what those levels of meaning are. Now, an important first step to understanding this parable is to know what it meant to them then. Otherwise, you end up imposing meaning that really isn't there. We have to make sure that we understand what it meant to them then. So the forgiveness of God to the first century Jew had some certain elements that we're going to talk about. For one, the forgiveness involves sacrifice. The sacrificial system instituted by God in the Old Testament was a huge part of the Jewish cultural identity. The book of Leviticus lays out all these ceremonial laws instituted by God after the Exodus. Forgiveness also involved atonement. The sin offering involved substitution and blood atonement. Sins were transferred to the head of an animal through the laying on of hands by the offending party. The death of the animal served as a substitute sacrifice on behalf of the offender and provided atonement for sin. Now we have to ask the question, well, was this still, that's going back to those times since the Exodus. What about the first century? Was this still a present reality? Well, the book of Hebrews tells us this. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Yes, it was a present reality. The temple was still standing. 
Forgiveness also involved the idea of covenant. Now, there's various types of biblical covenants. What I mean here is a sacred oath ratified in blood. Covenant and sacrificial system, there's an intimate connection between those two. Mark your place here in chapter 18, and please turn to Exodus 24. Exodus 24. We're going to try to look at this uh, connection between the covenant and the sacrificial system. Quick context, God is speaking through Moses to tell him to tell the people this. We're going to just read verses 1 through 8. Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain, the twelve pillars, according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half the blood and put it in basins. And half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said... All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. An intimate connection between the covenant and the bloody sacrificial system to the people of God. Something else we need to talk about is the heart in Hebrew thought. Now, you've heard Pastor Mike speak on this before, is, is the heart is not just the seat of emotions. Like we tend to think that here's where the emotions are and the, and the head is where the intellect is. It's a false dichotomy. That's not Hebrew thought. In, in the heart, as, is, was in Hebrew thought, was the location of the deepest thoughts and intentions and feelings. It represented the true inner self of the person. So when Jesus tells the disciples that they must forgive their brother from their heart, forgiveness from the heart was forgiveness from the inner true self. It's more like a character trait than a duty to be performed a number of times. And isn't that his point to Peter? They would have also understood God's mercy should be extended to others. Now, this is not a new command or a concept. Speaking of the book of Leviticus in chapter 19, the Lord was commanding Moses to speak his word to the people. And the scriptures say this, you shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. This is not a new teaching. They knew this. And lastly, in this section, they would have understood that God's anger is stirred by disobedience. 
Do you think you need a cross-reference for that? The Old Testament is replete with references about God's people disobeying him and the consequences of that. The bent of the heart is away from the commands of God. Now, important to our understanding is this next section that I've titled The Trajectory of Matthew's Narrative. Now, by trajectory, not all the technical guys out here start you know, taking notes that I'm going to define this correctly. It's the path of development of Matthew's narrative. That's what I mean by that. The path of development. I'm going to go this way because we're looking up here. The path of development of Matthew's narrative. Now, with Hebrew narratives and with narratives in general, biblical narratives, that repetition is a sign of emphasis. As I mentioned earlier, the ministry of Jesus was progressing. Religious opposition was intensifying. And throughout the ministry, Jesus constantly spoke about and foretold of his death and resurrection to his disciples, both directly and indirectly. Directly this morning, I've got some citations we'll go over quickly, just to, for an effort of time. In chapter 16, after Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, he tells them in verse 21, from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Chapter 17, two references to this. As they were coming down the Mount of Transfiguration and after Jesus heals a demon-possessed boy. 17.9 says this, As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And in 22 and 23 of 17, as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him and he will be raised on the third day. Chapter 20, as they were going into the Jerusalem, we're moving past 18 where where our parable is in chapter 20, following this trajectory, as they were going up to Jerusalem just prior to the triumphal entry when Jesus entered the city. 17 and 19, as Jesus was going to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside. And on the way, he said to them, see, we are going to Jerusalem, up to Jerusalem. And the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. They will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. And in Matthew 26, moving a little farther ahead in the narrative, opens with Jesus reminding his disciples that Passover is only a few days away. When Jesus had finished these sayings, verses 1 and 2 of 26, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. The narrative moves us to Passover in Matthew 26. So mark your place here and turn to Matthew 26. Matthew 26, verse 26 through 29. We've seen this pattern of emphasis. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness 
of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. The institution of the Lord's Supper occurs in the context of Passover. Now, for those of you that aren't that familiar with Passover, you can read about more of it in Exodus 12. But I want to be succinct, so I wrote this quick description. Passover is the annual commemorative meal instituted by God, prepared and eaten on the night before the Israelite deliverance from bondage in Egypt. Lambs were sacrificed and their blood spread on the doorways as a sign to the people that God would pass over them in judgment as he struck Egypt with the plague of the firstborn. Jesus interprets Passover through the lens of the gospel. What he's saying in these words is that Passover anticipates or points towards or points forward to the gospel. Now, what do I mean by that? What I mean by this is that through his life, death, and resurrection, the people may enter into a new covenant with God, escape the divine judgment of God, and be delivered from their captivity to sin. Now, when we read that, par- uh, when we read that text about the institution of the Lord's Supper, I don't know if you're, you're probably like me in some sense, hopefully not in every sense, but in some sense, when I come to the Lord's table, it, it just seems that the thought of his giving of his life and pouring out his blood, I don't get much farther than that. That it, that it grips me. And, and I find myself in that tension between being glad in one sense, but tremendously sad in another. But I want us to look at his words in here, and I want you to see, it's easy enough to see the gospel in the sign of baptism, isn't it? The life, death, burial, and resurrection, and to new life. Don't we see that in that sign? And then the other covenant sign that we practice in the church is the Lord's Supper. But I want you to look at it in this way, that we see life in the Lord's Supper. When he said this, in the breaking of bread, this is my body. It's a reference to his life. In a reference to death, he said, this is my blood of the covenant poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. We see his death to the Jew, a covenant poured out, the blood poured out is, is tremendously significant as we just found out right here. It brings to mind sacrifice. And in resurrection, when he says, I will not drink it again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. He's talking about his resurrection. He's talking about Surviving the grave. He's talking about life after death. In this Lord's Supper this morning we look at. So later as we come to the table, think about these things. Think about the life, death, and resurrection of Christ as a sign seen in the Lord's Supper. Now, I want to move quickly through, through some other points that Matthew's narrative, again, we're looking at trajectory of his narrative, where it drives us. The narrative drives us forward after the, after the Lord's Supper to what scholars call the humiliation of Christ. In his humiliation, in his abuse, in his trial, in his suffering, 
and his crucifixion, Matthew continues us on and to the exaltation of Christ, which is his victory over death itself through his glorious resurrection. And then finally, Matthew's narrative comes to a close with a divine edict, the Great Commission, when he tells us in 28 that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. All authority in heaven and earth. Not two locations. Jesus is saying all authority in all of reality has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. So here we have Matthew's narrative ending with the resurrected Christ issuing the call for the expansion of the kingdom of God under the Son of God. as the glorified king of the universe. That's where Matthew's narrative takes us. It opens in Matthew 1 with the announcement that the promised Messiah, the son of David and the son of Abraham, has come. And it ends with the resurrected Christ issuing this command, claiming all authority in heaven and earth, his exaltation and his divine edict. So what does it mean to us now that we've looked at this in this way? I want us to consider I want us to consider what it means to us now and that we have a shared condition with the original audience. We have a shared condition with the original audience. I think if we could move that slide one more, we'll be up to speed. Our shared condition with the original audience. What are we talking about? It means a fallen condition that prevents us from obedience, perfect obedience to God's commands. That's what we share with them. Something else we share with them is God's righteous requirement of a blood sacrifice for the atonement and forgiveness of sins, a new covenant relationship with him, and a transformed heart. That's what we share. And a third thing we share is access to the rest of the story that we just heard about. The Passover gospel connection, his humiliation, his exaltation, and finally, his divine edict in the Great Commission to all those who would claim the name of Christ as his followers. Now, here you can see that the cultural and historical gap between us and the original audience collapses. We have so much in common with them. Now, by way of application and review, what I want us to get out of this is today is that the parable of the unforgiving servant must be understood through the lens of the gospel. The parable is not intended to be understood in isolation from the rest of his narrative. If we stop at the end of that parable where Jesus is harsh warning there, what are we left with without the rest of the story that we know? What are we left with? We're left with Try harder. Be more forgiving. Be like, not like the servant, but be like the king. We're left with what they call moralism. It's a form of legalism. If we stop that at the end of that parable and try to understand that without looking at where it fits in the story within the story of Matthew's entire narrative, that's what we'd be left with. We'd be left with the law. 
The second thing we, have, we must understand is that humanity's greatest need is the forgiveness of God and reconciliation with God. Forgiveness of sin and reconciliation with God, and that is met in the gospel. That all those who put their faith and trust in the person and finished work of Jesus Christ may enter into a new covenant relationship with him, escape the divine judgment of God, receive forgiveness of sins, and be released from their captivity to sin. That's the gospel. What has been done on your behalf? Thirdly, God expects his people to extend his mercy and forgiveness to others. Again, we talked that that really, we spoke earlier, that's not a new concept. It goes back to the book of Leviticus and before that. But he expects us to extend this mercy to others. Paul puts it this way in Colossians 3. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Isn't that the message of the parable? So I have a couple of questions that are difficult this morning for us. One is, do we still get angry at the past wrongs of others? When we bring up things about the past, do we find this little spark of anger still within our hearts? I've often heard it from on many occasions that I know some of you come from not a good experiences with church. You may say, well, the church hurt me or I've been hurt by the church. Well, as Mike says, here's a newsflash. The church is people. It's not a building. It's not an abstract concept. It's people. What you're saying is you've been hurt by people and you're still struggling over forgiving them. You still have anger in your heart over that. You still bring it up. So the second question follows from the first and is, have you forgotten? Have we forgotten the mercy the king extended to us for the enormity of our debt like the servant in the parable the enormity of our debt before god compared to the paltry 100 days wages of one another that's the message so now this morning I would implore all of you, and myself included in this, is that I want us to release others from their debt to us. Release them from their debt to you. Remove that part in your heart where you want to grab them and choke them and say, pay me what you owe. Release them. One other point is that God's anger is stirred by disobedience. We can't dismiss the text or ignore biblical history. Jesus tells us in John 14 that very simple, right? If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If you love me. You can talk about loving Jesus all you want. But if you're not struggling through this life struggle to be obedient to Christ... It's a visible demonstration of your love for him, to obey him. Visible demonstration, not just words. So in closing, 
The parable of the unforgiving servant is about kingdom forgiveness or forgiveness 77 times, as Jesus tells us. And this is not a new teaching either. As far as the east is from the west, that's how far he removes our transgressions from us. Though your sins be like scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they're like crimson, they shall be like wool. What's God telling us? He's telling us that there is forgiveness in him. And it's not something that keeps getting brought up. It's rooted in mercy. The king has every right to everything we are and everything we own because of the enormity of our debt before him. Yet he releases us and forgives us our debts. And it's a judgment grounded in justice where God's covenant demands of perfect obedience and a blood sacrifice of atonement are satisfied through the person and work and finished work of Jesus Christ. And now you know the rest of the story. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you this morning as your disciples. We understand your great message and more importantly, As we see the story unfold, we understand what it cost you to bring us to yourself. We understand the tremendous sacrifice that Jesus came and stood in our place as our sins were effectively transferred to him. And he shed his blood on our behalf thereby giving atonement for those who put their faith and trust in him and him alone. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Lord, we praise you. And as we come to your table this morning, Lord, I want us to think about Just that section in your servant Matthew's text of how Jesus speaks of his life and his death and his resurrection from the dead. And we come with heavy hearts in gratitude. But honestly, there's a part of me like your servant Peter that said, would say, no, may it never be. That you would stand in my place. But I praise you, Father, for having the wisdom to carry out your plan. Thinking your thoughts and not man's. This morning we come before you, Lord, and we ask that you would bless us with your presence as we continue to your table in remembrance of you. Amen. So what I'd like us to do is the middle section can come forward.